Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and we've been sort of interviewing a lot of founders who've been doing excellent work in Pakistan startup ecosystem, which, by the way, has gone and grown by leaps and bounds in the last few months alone. Um, the latest data shows that just this year, so far in 2021, the first nine months or so of this calendar year, um, Pakistan startups have raised more money than the last three, four, five years combined uh, based on how you count the numbers. Um, so we are in an excellent place, and I think the entire ecosystem is at this sort of rising point in the S-curve where a lot of innovation, a lot of new investment is coming in, a lot of change will happen. And I think from my own point of view, a lot of this change and disruption is important to Pakistan's economy because there are sectors um, that need a lot of innovation and disruption. So today we're going to be talking to a pair of co-founders that again has started a startup in July of this year um, called Taza. And Mohsin and Abrar started this um, and have had a seed funding round of $2 million. Congratulations to both of you on that. Um, and really for me, what's exciting is that this is a startup that is going to be impacting the agriculture sector, which needs a lot of innovation and disruption in Pakistan. So Mohsin and Abrar, first of all, welcome to Pakistanomy. Second of all, congratulations on an amazing seed funding round. Um, and just starting off, like, tell us a bit about Taza. How did the idea come about and what is it that you're trying to do in the Pakistani agriculture space? Hey, Uzair, thank you. Uh, thank you for having us. Uh, very excited to be here. Thank you, Uzair. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And uh, yes, Taza, right? So uh, we, we, we met, I met Mohsin when we were working at Kareem. Uh, you know, we were trying to solve similar problems from a different, different perspectives. And, uh, you know, we were spending a lot of time trying to, you know, uh, turn cream around from after the pandemic. And, you know, uh, at one point in time, I think uh, we started thinking that, you know, uh, Kareem has made, created such a large impact. And, you know, we spent so much time sort of, uh, you know, solving for Kareem. But if we were to do something together and go, go for even a larger impact problem in Pakistan, uh, you know, we could we could do wonders, right? So Kareem has done so well in solving the mobility sector problems in Pakistan uh, through technology. So we saw we we felt that you know we could you know together work on something which could create even larger impact in Pakistan. And you know, agriculture kept coming up in terms of you know what could we do? Uh, why? Because it's such a large space. Uh, why? Because it's so instrumental. It's so central to what Pakistan is. You know what we do here. You know how. Uh, you know, how, we, what we eat, how we move, you know, all that. And, uh, you know, it, the amount of inefficiency that also exists in this supply chain in how, you know, the, the fresh produce moves in Pakistan, how, you know, meat moves in Pakistan, how different agricultural crops move in Pakistan, and, you know, how inefficient it is just felt like, you know, uh, a, a huge problem to solve. It took us a year to sort of build our conviction. Uh, it took us a lot of time to sort of, you know, jump into this, leave our cushy jobs and, you know, get into something so hard, so messy. Uh, but I think somewhere in July 2021, uh, we we realized that, you know, yes, this is a problem solved. This happened after us speaking to, you know, hundreds of people, stakeholders within the supply chain, you know, farmers, businesses, you know, artists, people who are sort of a, a bit, you know, away from the supply chain, you know, people in logistics, people in warehousing. And, you know, all kinds of stakeholders. And, you know, the more we spoke, the more we realized that, you know, we were onto something big. And uh, some point at one point in time, after, you know, struggling 
quite a bit on you know trying to sort of find the right solution for the market uh we felt that you know we had hit something you know big we hit enough and then at that point time we said yes we're in and we're going to sort of do this you know for the long term which is you know for it, for a problem like this it means 5 to 10 years and you know that's how taza was born also you know both of us have families who been involved in one form of agriculture or the other or you know so it also sort of was a problem that we had seen closely before and it also was something which was personal so you know it's just felt right like the right thing to do and you know july was when you know we said yes let's do this so help me understand what the product is in terms of uh, what taza will do in the agricultural space obviously it's a big space right you could do everything from cold storage to marketplace to connecting people getting farmers better seed fertilizer etc so what's the core product offering right so great question i think the main uh, what we are what we have as a vision in the long term is we want to build an operating system for the agriculture and food value chain an operating system which is much more efficient and an operating system that works for you know uh, works for the many and not for the few an operating system which is you know uh, which uh, you know reduces some of the inefficiencies and you know provides more value to the stakeholders including farmers and businesses and in its current shape and form what we have is a b2b marketplace for fresh produce which will eventually transition into this operating system so our starting point is you know fruits and vegetables way over where you know the problem is much more amplified because of extreme perishability in these goods uh, a very high fragmentation of you know producers spread across pakistan and you know again an, a very high fragmentation of businesses that consume these products on the demand side um that's where we starting out from we building a b2b marketplace where we buy fresh produce from the farmers and we sell it to the customers and thereby sort of create a virtuous cycle through which you know as we scale the flywheel is being built uh, we we can provide better prices to our customers if once we provide better prices to our customers the customer base grows and then you know we can buy more and you know that makes a virtuous loop which helps us grow uh, so that's what we have in today you know in today's uh you know shape and form so so, so it, um so, so the one thing like uh, the focus is uh, to make the standardization of the product so like we always tell people like we are not selling potatoes right now so we have standardized the product so like we have four types of potatoes one is like one is for the household use one is for the restaurants one one for the french fries people like so these kind of standardization that we have created in the industry which was which was not there before us so you're essentially segmenting the market and saying look like the restaurant requires a particular type of quality and quantity so you know they're different households will be different because what you're making for alu gosht is very different than what you're yeah. making for french fries right yeah. um yeah. but as you sort of procure stuff from farmers and i think like you know that is a very important part of the equation because there is issues around price discoverability for farmers there are issues around long term around farmer credit access um how do you build a credit history for farmers can they get the right inputs etc but you know abra you hit a, uh, an important point which is perishability so is the plan on the taza side then to say we're going to procure um and then because pakistan has issues around storage and perishability there's a lot of volatility in the market um tomatoes and onions are key and and sort of we see these volatility a lot in those two particular markets um so is the goal then on the taza side to sort of have your own uh, vertical integration where you store the product and make sure that that volatility goes away because i can see that that is a big offering not only to the farmer 
but potentially the consumer who says you know what like i can by buying through taza i have some level of you know comfort around where the price is going to be of the product i buy so yeah i mean like you said there's extreme volatility in the prices of items that we you know operate in that we sort of buy and sell um at this point in time we don't think of ourselves as you know uh, stockists or people who you know procure these products store them and you know sell them out later what we see ourselves are you know as a, a very efficient supply chain in which you know we we solve against the perishability by making sure that the difference the time difference between the point of har- harvest to the point of uh, delivery to the customer is very short we're talking about 18 to 24 hours um in a very large mar- in, you know in a in a geographically dispersed market like pakistan um you 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 write in terms of you know how price uh, volatility impacts how the customer demand how it impacts you know uh, the customer experience uh, it's something that we want to solve in a future as a future problem right now we're very focused on building that efficient supply chain but as as a future point what we also see uh, us foreing into is uh, contract farming or farming through which you know we ensure a certain roi for the farmer uh, getting a certain price fixed and you know making sure that you know through that you we also sort of uh, improve the par- farmers margins we also give them a certain certainty we also you know increase the margins that taza can make on this and then we also are able to reduce the price for the final customer and make sure that you know all of this is very um, you know consistent and certain as opposed to the high amount of volatility that we see in the market uh we are confident that we can do this because one um, a key statistic that a lot of people sort of uh, are not aware of is that on average a farmer makes 25 to 30% of the final retail price of the good he sells so if we talk about a case of mangoes or a kg of mangoes uh, a farmer makes 25 cents on the dollar when the you know 40 40 rupees a kg a farmer sells sells it for you know it goes as high as 160 200 rupees per kg when it's finally retailed to the customer so there's a lot of value locked in you know from the point the farmer sells it to the point it gets to a customer uh, there's a lot of wastage involved uh, there's multiple layers of logistics involved uh, there's um, you know multiple middlemen involved who on certain occasions are are you know have a rent seeking behavior so there's a lot of efficiency that can be brought in and you know provide um some some form of consistency to the prices and also sort of uh, you know uh, build margins uh, and pass some of that value to the farmers and pass some of that value to the businesses so that's really exciting because it's it's one thing right you know we've heard pakistan's finance minister shaukat karim talk about this publicly on many occasions others have talked but he's been sort of more vocal than most in this case in the sense that is like look we're leaving value on the table for the farmers a lot of middlemen there's like you know the government in a populist tone likes to call it the mafias um although it's a bit more complicated than that um from your point of view you've spoken to a lot of people as you were sort of building the the business case for what you're trying to do here um is there an appetite in the market to have this type of disruption and i'm asking this because if you sort of take a look at this middle layer right 40 rupee farmer sells the mango it goes into retail at 200 a lot of money is being made in the middle and your goal essentially if you you know scale up 5 years from now and become dominant in the market is basically going to take that delta away from a lot of middlemen many of whom are influential um how does how does your thinking align with that like you know that type type of disruption that you're aiming for what's the appetite for that generally speaking in terms of as you spoke to people in the market so if you look at any you know market in pakistan whether that's trucking 
whether that's warehousing, trucking more so, uh, agriculture, you, you find a lot of inefficiency. What you find is one, a lot of inefficiencies. Uh, two, what you find is also, you know, some kind of monopolistic or oligopolistic behavior, but, you know, some kind of cartelization, right? And uh, what you, you know, what generally what we've seen is that, you know, while, you know, they might create some hurdles in how these businesses grow, but they're also generally helpless against technology taking over some of them. So we've seen that with, you know, the taxi mafia that we talked about. We're seeing, we're seeing that real time with, you know, how trucking marketplaces are taking over some of the, you know, very established status quo elements in, you know, trucking, right? And in, in as far as like our direct market is concerned, which is agriculture, we're talking about middlemen, RTs and all. Uh, what we see is that, you know, the, the, the concentration of power is much less in this market as opposed to the other markets. And well, I'll tell you why. So there are hundreds of mandis in Pakistan. Um, every mandi has, say, so we're talking about 30 SQs, you know, 15 fruits, 15 vegetables. We're just talking about fruits and vegetables, right? Uh, and for each fruit and vegetable, we have, uh, say, 15 RTs in a market, right? So we're talking about, uh, you know, 450 RTs in one one Monday, we're talking about hundreds of Mondays, right? So just the, just by the fact of, you know, them being themselves very fragmented, you know, what we feel is that, you know, the concentration of power that they enjoy is not as much. And, you know, if you are able to build a direct linkage while making sure that, you know, you initially work with them because it's important, uh, I think that uh, it's an easier problem to solve than the other problems that that really keep us up in the in the night. You know, and they are just, you know, just, you know, and we can talk about them. They are, you know, fulfilling to these customers that we serve. That's just a huge bottleneck that we didn't envision in the beginning. Um, making sure that, you know, you are, you deliver a consistent quality. That's a nightmare that we didn't sort of foresee earlier. So we feel that this, this is a problem, but uh, not as big as, you know, it's, uh, you know, thought of. So help me understand like some of the challenges, right? You mentioned customer fulfillment quality. I'm already thinking about on the back end, just even building the relationship with the farmer to procure um, the product, right? And having that relationship requires feet on the street or somebody to build the trust. Same thing on the front end in the customer side, you have to acquire the customer, build the trust, fulfill their orders. So what has it been like dealing with some of these challenges, quality, of course, being a big one, um, and, and how are you dealing with some of them? So I think um, you want to take this? So, so really sorry, uh, Zain, like I have some emergency at home. I have to be so really sorry for that. No, no worries. That's fine. I hope everything is fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really sorry for that. No, no problem. So yes, so I think uh, what we know and again, that, that the experience comes from directly working at uh, startups like, uh, you know, Karim Luber. What we know is that, you know, uh, you need to be able to speak the language for, for, you, for, for, for you to build that trust. And that language is just not the, you know, the, the language you speak. It's just, you know, how, uh, the way you conduct yourself, what you wear, how you speak and all. And what we learned is that, you know, Mohsin was somebody who launched rickshaw category in Pakistan. At the point that he did that, right, um, it was almost impossible to foresee that these people would be using apps to go pick up customers and, you know, you know, even track their routes and all. But, you know, how they were able to do it was mainly by using people within that community that, uh, you know, such as master trainers, right, using them as master trainers and, you know, big, big, using them as engaged community builders 
uh, and you know that's something that was really helpful in that. In our case, also what we also want to make sure is that we work with the ecosystem. Even when we you know build our retail side of the business, which is you know customers, we use uh, some of the people who already exist in the market to sort of convince uh, convince them and you know build a community. On the farmer side, also what we use what we do is we use or you know use is probably the wrong word, but you know we we engage some of these people. uh some of these farmers to work with us on and you know we convince them of what the vision is and how it's going to help them in the long term not only them but the larger farmer community and then they also they help us build that community themselves uh the other part is of course which we'll be venturing into in a later stage uh is sort of making them bringing them on the digital platform right and that of course is going to require a lot of uh, you know a lot of effort on you know building the right product you know making sure that you know you're using the right technology even right now you know even using ussd codes or you know using your using whatsapp or using the more popular or more easier you know user friendly tools that is always on the table so that is a problem that we thinking about we worrying about we not digital on the farmer side right now it's all offline but currently the offline is basically us you know uh, trying to speak the language trying to build a long term relationship and you know trying to you know uh uh engage people within the community to sort of you know build the community for us yeah i think that that's an important strategy right because you're not going to have technology adoption um at that level particularly with smaller farmers when they don't know you they don't trust you they they're not sure about whether they want to invest the time and effort to learn a new technology when you're just a new player and starting up right so essentially first has to be get the right incentives in place build that relationship they see some material gain coming out of it and then say look there are better ways to sort of unlock even more value um that's being left on the table what's been the issue on the quality side um help help us understand like because that's something like you know i've always been fascinated by in sort of pakistan um and i was telling you earlier before we started recording i'm headed back to pakistan right so i live here in the us you go to the supermarket and you have everything from small cage free eggs to jumbo xl genetically modified eggs right you go into the egg aisle and it's like 10 feet long and and 6 feet wide right uh, or 6 feet high you don't see that in pakistan mainly because there is no categorization and you know as as you were describing earlier you're doing some of that on the potato side um but that again categorization is quality control right you can't categorize if you're not doing efficient quality control so what's that been, been, been that experience been like and what are some of the challenges in the food supply chain in pakistan that leads to that quality challenge right so i think uh, the the key uh, i think if you you want to solve this problem you have to go all the way back to you know what happens on the farm right now and the prop, and the reality is that you know most of the farmers are you know do not have access to information they do not have access to you know great inputs uh, there's a lot of counterfeit going on over there uh, and you know based on these two problems and then there is the problem of not having access to capital which compounds in or which sort of uh, really you know deepens this this overall problem what this leads to is you know uh, starting from even the starting point uh, there is a lot of problems in quality right the next problem is that you know there is no incentive there's not a lot of incentive to produce great quality and it's mainly because the quality is not really clearly determined until you know the produce moves all the way uh, forward to the to the retailer right so i'll tell you so for example 
starts with a, for example, let's talk about, you know, mangoes again, right? Starts with a farmer, somebody most likely has that farm, you know, on theka, as we say it, or on, on rent, right? On, or on a contract. Uh, that person sells to a bipari. A bipari is somebody who aggregates multiple farms. That bipari sells it to, in, in, a, in a sort of like a typical supply chain, that he sells to a large mandi, uh, to, to, to an arti in a large mandi. Uh, that arti or a commission agent sells to somebody called a phadiya in Lahore and I think uh, something in Karachi, I, I don't remember, I always forget that word. But it's, it, he sells to a phadiya on commission uh, who's a wholesaler and then it goes to the retailer, right? The retailer buys from the phadiya. Now, until the product gets to the phadiya or the retailer, it's never open, right? The arti even sells the product, you know, he sells 100 cases of uh, mangoes by just just showing the people two cases and in a in a bid which will which is actually startling for a lot of people if, if you see that uh, whole auction process he sells you know 10 he sells 100 cases of mango in a matter of 15 20 seconds and he does that over and over again and it is the turnover is extraordinary right so, sorry uh, to interrupt you here but i would just for those listening like if you live in pakistan lahore karachi any of the cities or towns um, it is truly an experience to go in the morning at 5 a.m to a monday and experience that auction process take place. And you're absolutely right. It's the same for coriander. It's the same process for other fruits and vegetables where it's a couple of things are checked and then the rest just moves on through the supply chain. Absolutely. And all the and the product moves all the way to the final padia or the retailer without getting quality checked, right? And you know, and what that leads to is no incentive for producing high quality, right? So we said, you know, to recap one. Uh, the farmers don't have great great farming practices because of poor access to information and inputs and of course capital. And then even if they produce great quality, you know the, there is no incentive. You know to sort of there is no incentive that they're going to get for producing high quality. So they're generally okay with you know getting by. Uh, the two of these factors combined lead to you know what we get in Pakistan. And you know when we so how did we start? Right, me and Mohsen, we just went to you know these retailers every evening after work and we said you know we want to sell to you. And, you know, tell us what you want to buy. And they said, you know, they looked at our face and they said, you, you're going to buy for us? <laughs> we said, yes, we're going to buy for you. And, you know, uh, we said, you know, they said, okay, get me, you know, a kacha pakka arm, you know, which is two days old. And, you know, this is exactly what I need. And we tried to do that. It's, it's a very long story. But, you know, what we very quickly realized was that, you know, we are not able to provide them the right quality. Uh, and it was because two reasons. One, uh, we, we didn't have the experience to buy that. And two, there was no consistent quality coming from the back, right? Every day it was different. Every wholesaler was selling a different quality and a different price. And uh, that was like a aha moment for us. And we said, okay, so let's try to, to sort of standardize the quality. Let's try to provide consistent quality day in, day out, whatever way we do it. Uh, our method was, of course, providing a QA, QC service or, you know, a Q, building a QA, QC operation through which we could standardize, right? So we could uh, grade and sort and, you know, separate, you know, what could, what is, what does this retailer need? What, what could be sold for a premium? What would actually be sold for a discount and what would go, go to waste? And, you know, we did that all very early in the perishability cycle. And as soon as we started doing that, and, you know, there was a month where every day, you know, our customers would call us in the evening, in the morning, and they'd tell us that, you know, you've just screwed us, right? Because this is their, their, their livelihood, right? And, but as soon as we sort of started providing this consistent quality through our sorting grading operations, we realized that, you know, uh, the, the amount of stick, stickiness, the amount of retention 
the frequency of purchase really skyrocketed, right? Uh, now our customers, and it's probably a number that is unheard of in any other sector, our customers place orders with us almost five times a week, right? They have a daily replenishment cycle. Uh, the retention numbers are very high. And it's not because we, you know, it's, it's, it's not a price factor. It's just that we are able to provide them a consistent quality day in, day out. Uh, by our sorting grading operations. But this does not solve the root cause, which is basically poor farming practices, right? And that is where we want to be at a later stage in a later part of our journey, where we actually provide these farmers great, uh, you know, high quality input. We provide them the right information. What do you farm at what part of the year? What kind of, you know, practices? When do you water? When do you harvest? All that. And, you know, we provide all the inputs on credit and solve their access to you know uh, access to capital problem we buy their produce we they know that you know we're going to buy from them at this price and so we solve their roi problem also and in doing so we make sure that you know we also get the right quality from the farm as opposed to us making superficial you know uh, interventions at a very later stage and uh, not really you know making uh, you know superficial interventions have you know do, do not have great you know uh, game changing impact so that's where we want to be. And, and there's only so much scaling you can do, right, through that intervention. Like if you scale yeah. up, let's say 10, 15, 20x, um, the sorting operation can't grow 15, 20x. Yeah. It's going to eat a lot of your costs and your profit margins in the middle. Um, from a product standpoint, you mentioned um, potatoes in terms of how you're sort of segmenting the market there. What are other products that you're in? Secondly, um, are you currently in Lahore and would just get want to get a sense of you obviously raised a brilliant funding round. What's the growth plan in terms of what's next for Taza? So I think uh, that's what really keeps us up, which, you know, keeps us up, up at night. Uh, we just have covered 5% of Lahore. Uh, we were, we've already sort of, uh, I mean, we're moving more than, you know, six, 7,000 kgs a day of produce. We only have covered under 5% of Lahore. Uh, and, you know, we just want to expand out very fast. Uh, initially, we were undercapitalized. Uh, we were under-resourced. Uh, we're solving those problems very quickly. Um, our business scaled up faster. Our infrastructure was behind. Our technology was behind. We're trying to make sure that, you know, they also catch up. Now we just moved to a very... Uh, uh, we, we moved to a very uh, sort of purpose-built facility for our warehouse. Um, and, uh, you know, that was also becoming a problem for us because uh, we're moving a lot of produce in a very small space. So we, we're overcoming those challenges. Initial target is to sort of scale very quickly to all of Lahore uh, within the next two, three months. And then also get into two, so grow in two ways, right? One, we expand into other cities and build a network um, because as we scale, uh, it, it provides us more sort of ammunition to work with a larger number of farmers and, you know, buy their produce for all year round. And two, we also want to expand into, you know, fruits, right? Right now we're just doing vegetables, but we also want to do fruits. Um, uh, so that's also an expansion area, which is, you know, short to medium term. So say six, six to 12 months. In the long term, of course, you know, we, we talked about contract farming and, you know, access to credit problem for, you know, these farmers. So that's an area of expansion for us. Um, and, you know, provide, very long term, I know you, you haven't asked for it, but very long term, uh, we're trying to solve the, you know, uh, we try to, we, we want to be a farmer super app where, you know, they perform all their, you know, whatever they want to do on their app. Again, it's, it's a very sort of uh, friendly thing to say uh, because, but, you know, that's where we want to be, where, you know, they buy their uh, inputs, you know, through our app. 
they sell their produce through our app they get all the info information that they need through through our app they get access to you know credit through our app so that's where we want to be uh, in a, in, a, in a sort of not so distant future i think um, that uh, super app is a buzzword but i think that's what my mind was going to as well as you were describing where you're going and how you're trying to solve this problem because um to me the parallel is for example what's going on across the border in india there are startups like ninja card there um and the indian government just announced that it's going to make um through partnerships with companies like cisco it's going to make its uh, farmer database uh, different silo databases public um so that these companies can crunch the big numbers around soil health how much fertilizer farmers are using because they get subsidies on that so the state has that data weather patterns the state has that data water consumption patterns the state has that data and it's basically letting private companies to build the technology stack um that says hey you are farmer in district x of state y um here's all the data build your models and then go work with the farmers to say this is how much fertilizer we think you need at this point of the year this is how we're going to grade it sort it do the contract farming with them right so i think pakistan's government hasn't gotten to that point but you're already thinking in that direction i think that's exciting because that's the kind of disruption our agriculture market needs um not only to meet the growing food demand domestically um for a growing population um but also it, pakistan has a lot of potential on exporting fruits and vegetables right and like mangoes you, you mentioned it a couple of times even here when you get the mangoes um in the united states when when you know the mango season is on um you have these issues around quality control right so the one pet peeve i have um with mangoes is always that you know the sap of the mango tree burns the flesh and there's a black spot on the mango and that's a quality control problem but the farmer doesn't know how to clean that sap off so by the time it lands up here in washington dc or houston or wherever the sap has burned a hole in the mango and that causes fungus that causes all sorts that's a loss for everybody in the supply chain right so i i was asking like from from you know you mentioned some of the issues that keep you up at night obviously it's still very early days for you guys um but what were some of the early assumptions that you made about the market that you know are being tested and you're trying to figure your way through them right so i think uh, initially a few of them and uh, a lot of them proven wrong actually uh, initially what we thought was that you know if you serve uh, you know going to mandi is a huge problem for some of the businesses that we sell to so these are these small vegetable sellers who have their kiosks you know and uh, we felt that you know if, if we are able to give them just the delivery uh, it's going to sort of be a game changer for them and you know they're just going to be converting to our uh, platform and what we realized very soon was that you know this is actually they don't think of this as a chore right they think of this as a part of their daily activity and you know they they go to these mandis they you know uh, have people that they hang out with over there they they have their routines you know they go to this place they have their chai and you know they all of that right so just providing them delivery of products at their kiosks was not enough so uh, then you know pricing we thought pricing could be a play wasn't a major play until we solved the quality part right uh, and made sure that they could get consistent quality which ensured that they could sell to their customers profitably uh, we we had challenges right so a lot of a couple of assumptions on you know how we would be be able to convert these customers uh, on you know convenience or on price didn't prove true and we actually hit the nail when we started providing the right quality uh, another thing that we initially thought and you know that was very sort of superficial of us to think of is, is that you know it's just the artists who are actually creating all this problem right the problems are much more deeper right it's they are more structural 
um perishability in itself is such a huge problem that you know it the, it makes the market you know a market of passing the parcel right because you're just passing something which is very hard you don't want to end up holding the back when the product perishes right so you're just passing it on um you it's also because you know there is no way to forecast the supply and demand of this of uh, the products at a macro level um and there is no way to even you know at a macro level make sure that you know you don't have periods of oversupply so you know what happens today in the periods of oversupply so for example a uh, potato is going to be coming in in full flow in in january right and there is no way you could sort of stop that because that's how our weather system that's how our seasonality works right so uh, there there is a lot of wastes 30% post harvest loss according to adb in pakistan uh, and you know it's just how the market is structured and that just leads to some of the you know uh, inefficiencies and it's not the artists in themselves so much so that you know we've come to realize that you know if we didn't have these middlemen today uh we would all be hungry and you know even the farmers would not be able to sell the produce because they provide uh, some very important intermediate intermediation you know uh, they provides a very important you know access to market which the farmers don't have without them they provide access to capital even bigger so they are also kind of like buy now pay later players or lenders Uh, you know they they have credit extended to their customers so these wholesalers they have credit extended backwards and you know uh, if artists were not extending this credit uh, was nobody else would right and the alternatives to you know the loan sharks that they have in their own regions they're actually even worse right so this assumption that we started out is with that you know we we'll, we we're going to eliminate the artists and the middlemen and make make a very efficient supply chain that really wasn't true and what we realized was that you know there are a lot of structural problems to be solved we have to build an efficient supply chain much more efficient than what we have today but uh, the the players in the system that exist today they are of course they are sometimes exploitative when they can but uh, they also add a lot of value yeah i think that's one thing like most people um who uh, don't fully understand um these markets get wrong right that the middleman is actually providing some level of risk um or absorbing some level of risk and providing some level of credit to the market and yes it's not you know it's not at low interest rates or you know they're they're not like doing it for charity so they're making a buck there um but they're also absorbing a lot of risk right and my experience growing up has been like my father worked as his business in jodia bazaar so i would grow up going there and there you would see at 9 a.m all the sabzi mandi guys would come in and they sort of like you know had bought their bulk and they were breaking the bulk and sorting things on their own etc and you know as a child you just view them talk to them get a sense of what they were doing and you realize that yes the market was inefficient but the middleman who was extending credit to them right like this kiosk owner does not have 10000 rupees to buy produce right what he's basically doing is just in time he's telling the guy give me a loan for 10000 i'll sell my produce today tomorrow and i'll give you back 10000 plus something so that you know it's worth your while because i'm not a credit worthy enough uh person so you need some level of risk um reward there um but it works it's inefficient it works but we need to make it more efficient and i think this wholesale idea of like artists are terrible let's get rid of them um if we just get rid of them point blank it's not going to work the entire market will collapse so we need alternatives to be built up as we do that um from sort of you know overall policy around agriculture you know you you said your families have been involved in this sector obviously now you're full on studying this implementing disruptive technologies into this um what has been sort of 
the big challenge on a policy level with agriculture, right? Because we frequently hear, I've grown up hearing government X announces new agricultural package, government Y announces X, you know, they, they keep announcing new packages, but fundamentally, structurally, the problems remain the same. Just today, I woke up and was reading the paper from Pakistan and the finance minister announced we're going to eliminate some taxes and control the price of wheat and sugar. It doesn't really work. So you have experience in this sector. Like, what is the problem that policymakers don't seem to understand to solve this problem? I, I would not uh, sort of. Uh, I would confess that you know my understanding on the policy side on the agriculture is not very sort of uh, strong. Uh, we try to sort of uh, build our own thing in sort of uh, you know very cut off from the the larger. Uh, policy realities of Pakistan. Uh, we shouldn't really, you know, we should be more sort of attuned to what's happening around us at the macro level. But we, at this point in time, we just super, super razor sharp focused on, you know, just finding the finding the PMF for our customers, just scaling. Uh, but you know, um, we we would want to work with government on some of these topics. But at this point in time, I'd be very honest. Uh, our understanding of that side. What we know is that you know what's great for us is that this sector does not have uh, you know wet. Uh, that really makes a lot of things easier for us to work on. But uh, other than that, uh, we feel that you know government should be a part of you know government should be aligning incentives or you know removing roadblocks. But more than that, I think uh, as a believer of free markets, I don't think that you know there is much that they can actually do to you know solve some of the more deep rooted issues other than just aligning the incentives and making sure that you know. They don't play with the free market too much, but again, that's my opinion, and it's it's mostly you know uninformed or you know very superficial to be very honest. Yeah, and I mean that's fair enough. Um, you know, just overall, you're absolutely right. Like there's two markets that I've sort of looked at over time. One is rice, and one is wheat. And you know, rice market, the state does not play a role, um, and you don't hear of crises in the rice market, even though Pakistan exports a ton of rice, um, right? And and the wheat market, where the government plays a big role. Um, you hear about frequent crises and I'm like, well, here's the evidence, right? So I'm with you on, on the fact that the state should just get out of the way and line incentives and let the market play its role because we've seen it in, in markets like rice and maize that this has worked. Um, you worked at Kareem, you sort of seen the growth of Pakistan startup ecosystem. Um, you know, one of the questions I frequently get from, you know, younger listeners in particular is that, you know, we've seen sort of this shift happen and this shift has occurred, I would say, mainly because of Kareem, but in the last 24 months where the startup ecosystem has gone, it's sort of accelerated is, you know, my generation of people or your generation of people growing up would be like, you know, after studying, they, you know, weren't too keen on civil service jobs, some were. But, you know, it was like, okay, I want to go to Bank Al-Fala or I want to go to MCB or I want to go to Engro, et cetera. You know, good multinational jobs with good benefits. Um, most young people don't want to do that. They find it boring, right? And they're like, I want to succeed at a startup. But not everyone can succeed at a startup. And education systems in Pakistan don't really skill you to work at a startup because we're lacking at a structured level on creative thinking, problem-solving skills. So given that you sort of, you know, had a front-row seat in Pakistan startup ecosystem, what would you tell aspiring entrepreneurs or those that, you know, say want to excel at Taza or want to excel at the next Kareem, et cetera? How do you succeed um, at being in this type of a, a hyper growth startup? So I think yeah, you, you have made an absolutely great point. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the opportunities that we have today, you know, just, you know, you have a dream, you have a big idea, you go to these VCs, you raise money and you just, you know, 
just executed, right? That opportunity did not exist over here. Uh, the kind of money that is being raised in Pakistan, uh, even US companies in US would struggle to raise money on the kind of valuation caps at which the companies in Pakistan are raising, right? So I, it's it's a bit of an exaggeration, but you know uh, what I'm trying to try, point I'm trying to make is that you know we're living in a very interesting time. Uh, people who want to go out there and make a difference. Previously, you know, you would go to a bank and you know they would say you know. Fuck, right this uh yeah the, the bank still says like bring me salary slips from the last yeah, two years yeah. and blah 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 it's like dude i just graduated college what are you yeah. talking about so 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 we were living in very interesting times i think um, without going into you know what has kicked this off because a lot of things have sort of uh, come together for this to go this way and kareem has a major you know role to play in this the kareem exit was something that triggered a chain of events which also sort of uh, led to uh, what is happening in the region today but i think for aspiring entrepreneurs uh, a few things that really sort of uh, matter are one i think uh, we, you should be passionate about what you do um, and it, it's again so very sort of uh, kind of you know cliched kind of advice but uh, i've seen that you know if you're not passionate about what you're doing um, especially if you're hard solving a hard problem like ours, like like agriculture, which requires you know just you know digging your feet, heels in, and you know solving that problem for only in the long term. If you're not passionate about the problem, uh, you you get burnt out you know very quickly. You've seen that with very smart people. You've seen that with very industrious, hardworking people. Uh, when they're not excited about the problem that they're solving, uh, and it's just a means to, for example, a great name on the CV. Or is it? It's it's a way to sort of make more money. It generally sort of does not end up well, and it leads to burnout and you know fizzling out of the system. So you know it take. I think people should take more time in building up you know their excitement, uh, their passion about you know the problems that are being solved. Uh, if it's not there, you know it generally does not lead to a great outcome. One and I think two. Uh, a sort of joint joint point that I want to make is that you know you also need to have a lot of resilience, especially in early stage startups. Uh, there's so much failure that you encounter day in day out, uh, and you know if you're not comfortable with that, uh, you join, you know you you again are going to sort of uh, uh, be unhappy and eventually you know not like what you do and eventually just just sort of you know get out of the system. Uh, again, not a great outcome. Uh, resilience is super important. Being comfortable with failure is super important. Just keeping you know just just moving, uh, just being in motion, and you know okay, friend, you know. I failed. Let's do something else. Let's do something else. And doing that over and over again over a long period of time is something that really, uh, I think, helps in early stage startups and entrepreneurship in general. And uh, I think finally, uh, being uncomfortable with uncertainty is also something very important, right? Uh, especially in these early stage startups, in which you know you're trying to build uh, markets or business models or operating systems that you know never existed. You know, you're always you know trading in an uncertain sort of space, right? Uh, and uh, if you're not if you're not comfortable with that, that also sort of uh, does not lead to great outcomes. Uh, if you if you are somebody who's very structured, it's it's good to be structured. I don't I don't have anything against that. But you know if you're very structured to a point where you cannot sort of uh, make decisions when you don't have clarity, I think uh, that does not uh, that does not work. So if I were to recap, I think. Being passionate about your problems you're trying to solve, to having a lot of resilience, being okay with failure, and still, you know, going going at it helps. And then being comfortable with uncertainty and going into uncharted territories also helps. And especially in early stage startups, but I think entrepreneurship in general too. I've never done traditional entrepreneurship, so I wouldn't know much about it. But uh, early stage startups, I feel that you know these three points are very important. 
I think the point on resilience is so important, right? And it, it's I'm glad you brought it up. Not many people bring it up. And ge- just generally, I would say even beyond working in startups, if you're starting in your career, um, odds are that your 21-year-old self is going to get a lot of things wrong. Um, your 25-year-old self is going to get a lot of things wrong. Um, we're going to make mistakes. And if you have it in you to, you know, say, how can I make things better? I'm going to screw up, be open to that. And then pick up new skills along the way, right? And like, as you were describing the resilience point, I remember my 24, 25-year-old self um, had to work with the database, had no idea about SQL and Python, right? Um, And we were using Excel, the database kept crashing, the analysis wasn't coming out right. And at some point I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna go teach myself Python to fix this and clean it up and learn it myself. Took me three months. Um, but that's how you have to be, right? Because there's going to be a problem. And especially at a startup where skills are hard to come by, nobody's going to know everything. So you have to pick up the skills and those that pick up those skills faster and realize that here's a problem here is I'm going to help you sort this out, um, is going to excel and the rest are going to fizzle out. So, um, that's very, very important advice. Um, I, I, before I let you go, um, go ahead. No, no. So I was just saying that, you know, uh, when we started out, I told you that, you know, there was almost a month where we failed consistently in this, right? Uh, we were trying to sell the right quality every day. The customer is going to call us, you know, hey, you screwed me because, you know, I wanted to sell something else. There are two customers because I have poor quality. That's me on you. Uh, we tried selling through, you know, different pricing models, different purchasing models. And, you know, there was so much failure. And, you know, most of, you know, almost every night me and Mosin would have this one hour, two hours na- long phone call, you know, where we were trying to sort of uh, pick each other up one day, you know, I was down the other day, he was down. A lot of times we said, okay, let's just, you know, go back to what we were doing because this does not make sense. We'll not be able to do it. But I think just having that resilience really helped and having passion, you know, being passionate about what we were doing also helped. So uh, major, major point, uh, super important. You, you made a great point about, you know, uh, encountering a problem, finding a way to sort of solve it uh, without sort of, you know, losing it, you know, hey, uh, I mean, I will not be able to do it. I think that's, if you're able to not take no as an answer, I think that's just a major, major, you know, uh, major, uh, you know, advantage that you'll have. Yeah, for sure. So this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm excited to see where Taza goes. I think uh, it's exciting that um, there is disruption and innovation coming in Pakistan's agricultural sector. It's long overdue. Um, You're absolutely right that Kareem's exit um, the hard work a lot of people did in the startup ecosystem to make the case for why Pakistan's startup ecosystem was the next big thing um, is beginning to pay off now. Um, and it's exciting because ultimately, and I think you and I both agree on this, the market will innovate, right? If you align incentives, disruption will happen. It's not going to happen because the state has a policy X or policy Y. Yes, it can unlock, it can unleash momentum when it needs to by getting out of the way or reforming as needed. But ultimately, it's people like yourself who are on the ground, who have a thesis, and you know what? They need capital to grow. And I'm excited that that capital is finally flowing into Pakistan. So best of luck on that. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests two or three book recommendations that books that you think people should pick up and read. They can be on any topic, business, fiction, nonfiction. So would love your recommendations on that. Right. So I think a couple of books that are really helped shape who I am. I think one of them was, uh, I read this book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One, in which he talks about, you know, how hard getting from zero to one is, how do you get there at all? I think uh, that really helped me 
you know, conceptualize how my zero to one is going to happen. And even at points when I uh, wasn't sure what to do, I think that book really helped me, you know, cross some of the hurdles that I had in my life. Uh, there's this other book, uh, it's by somebody called Jim Collins. Uh, it's called Good to Great. And he, in that book, he talks about, you know, empirically, he looks at the you know, stock market price of, uh, I think, hundreds of companies. And he looks at, you know, who are like long-term winners uh, and who are like, uh, and how, what are those attributes that differentiate long-term winners from, uh, you know, uh, maybe sort of short-term short -term winners and from complete failures. And uh, I think that book and some of the leadership principles that he talks about, for example, there's a, there's a conversation on level five leadership and, you know, how uh, great leaders that he came across were extremely, you know, driven, but also very humble and not very sort of charismatic or, you know, not very sort of, you know, not those backslapping, you know, gentlemen. So that really helped me, you know, shape, shape who, how I thought about leadership. Um, so there's this book, also there's this book by called, called Sapiens by, I think, Noal Hariri or someone. Uh, I think I really liked it. I, some, it, it. I read it because a lot of people were talking about it. So I, I was just, you know, missing out, you know, what's happening here. And uh, when I read it, I really sort of enjoyed, you know, and what I learned from it was how insignificant we are as, you know, where we are today. And, you know, how, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we think of ourselves as, you know, people who are going to be here, here forever. You know, we think of ourselves as very sort of powerful people, strong people who are going to change the world and all. But, you know, we, we, aren't, we are completely insignificant. And, you know, that realization also sometimes helps to bring humility in what we do and how we conduct ourselves. Yeah, I think um, uh, the Sapiens book, for me, I had a similar feeling and I had sort of other feeling out of that was that his point around, you know, individually, we're basically nothing, right? But collectively, um, humanity has this power of making myths and those myths can transform the world and the environment that we live in, right? And you're, you know, it, the, the point you made around agricultural markets, getting the farmers together, speaking their language, bringing them together on this journey, connecting with the customer um, at a market level, that's transformative, right? Individually, you won't be able to do that. I won't be able to do that. But if you can convince um, key players in that agriculture market, in a society, in whatever way, shape or form, people are trying to change the world. That to me was a big, you know, awareness of that book was that individually, nothing really can be done. But if you can, you know, innovate and inspire people and collectively bring them together on something meaningful, then the world can be transformed. It was a brilliant book. And so I'm glad you recommended that. Um, and, and I think the Jim Collins were good to great. I'm sensing a pattern here because I've had a couple of other extreme mafias uh, on, on the podcast and that has come up a few times. So I'm guessing that that's a, you know, a common thread across um, the Kareem world is that read this book and I haven't read it. So it's definitely on my list. So thank you for recommending that as well. Um, Abrar, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, wishing you and your team all the best. It's exciting that you've raised the fantastic funding round in, in the very early stages of your startup and more great things to come. So keep at it. No, thank you very much for having, having us and uh, thank you for a great conversation. Yeah, take care. Take care.